passage this morning is 1 Peter 3, verses 18 to 22. So let's pay attention to the reading of God's word. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your word today, and that by your Spirit you would open our hearts to accept it, to believe it, and to see Christ through it. In Jesus' name, amen. Martin Luther said about this text, This is a strange text, and a more obscure passage, perhaps, than any other in the New Testament. For I do not certainly know what St. Peter means. just want to warn you, buckle up a bit, gird up the loins of your mind. It's going to be a difficult text, but we trust that not only is all Scripture inspired, God-breathed, and true, but it's also useful, useful for us. So let's, let's look at this text and uh, in faith that the Holy Spirit will bless it to our benefits. There are weird passages like this in the Bible. You know, the Westminster Confession says, all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves. Uh, maybe they were thinking of this passage. Um, the basic gospel message, what, what you need to know for salvation, is clearly taught in Scripture. You don't need to be a rocket scientist or a seminary professor to understand it. Um, at the same time, there are passages like this that are not plain in themselves, where even seminary professors disagree about how to understand it. Um, but as we come to this passage, and as I studied this passage this week, I saw that there really is so much to benefit us, so much wonderful gospel truth, even in this strange, weird passage. So as we go through it, I'm going to break it into three points. First of all, I want us to see the basic gospel story in this passage. Uh, second, we're going to look at the spirits in prison and ask what, what's going on with that. And third, we're going to see what Peter has to say about baptism and how baptism works. So if we're going to take a look at the basic gospel story, we're going to look at these spirits in prison, and then we're going to learn about baptism. Okay, so the first point, uh, the simple gospel story. I must confess, I do have a fondness for these weird passages. I think it's something I get from my father, who's an Ezekiel scholar. I kind of like to figure out, you know, what is God saying to us in these passages? 
But I also think it's possible to get kind of caught up in that weirdness and a little too obsessed with it. Um, So I want us to see in this first point that there's a lot of good, simple gospel truth in this passage as well. In fact, if if Peter had felt like being a little more normal when he wrote this passage, um, if he left out verses uh, 19 and 21, um, we would have one of the simplest apostolic summaries of the death, resurrection, ascension, and session at the right hand of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, So before we go into these, these rather unique parts in the middle, I want us to take a look at this framework Peter builds of the gospel story. Let's start in verse 18. First word, for or because. These words are the logical grounding for what goes before. Do you remember what Peter has been talking about since all the way back in chapter 2, verse 13, where he says, be, sh- be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That's the theme he's been on for these last two chapters. He's been calling Christians to submit to authority in their various relationships. And if you take these passages from Peter and you compare them to some of the other passages in the New Testament about submitting to authority, you'll notice a particular emphasis here to the fact that this is often submission to unjust authority. Submitting to authority is often going to involve suffering, even if you do the right thing. The emperor and his governors are supposed to punish evil and reward good, but we know it didn't always work that way in the Roman Empire. In fact, Peter himself was going to get the opportunity to live out his teaching as he was executed by a Roman emperor. Masters will be unjust to their slaves and beat them. Wives may have unbelieving husbands who persecute them for their faith. Peter doesn't shy away from these realities. His hearers lived in an extremely hierarchical and brutal culture, and most of them had no recourse to political power or democratic representation to rectify these injustices. The early church was by and large on the bottom of Roman society, And you know, when you're on the bottom of society, the temptation to resort to evil in order to get ahead must be extreme. If the system is stacked against you, why should you play by the rules? But Peter sums up his ethical instruction in verse 17 by saying, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than to do evil. It's the kind of simple phrase that that Peter is encapsulating all of his ethical commands here at the end. It is better to do good, even if you suffer, than to do evil. One might fairly respond to that statement by asking, why? Why is it better to do good, especially in a system that doesn't reward fair play? Well, in answer to this question, Peter points us to Jesus. And so we get to the four that begins this passage. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Peter reminds us that Christ suffered. Jesus doesn't command us to persevere in doing good as one who has remained aloof from our suffering. 
Rather, Jesus gives us this command as one who has entered into the depths of human suffering itself, and not for anything wrong he did. So, Jesus is an example here, one who has walked in this path of suffering before us. But that's not all. Peter isn't just saying that Christ knows our pain. Christ suffered once for sins. This is not an endlessly repeated suffering. It is a definitive once-for-all suffering. You see, in his death on the cross, Jesus dealt with suffering. He defeated it once and for all. And why did Jesus suffer? Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Jesus suffered for our sake, for our sins. Because suffering and death were the penalty for our sins, Christ took them upon himself. He suffered in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. As we stand before God's throne, we are unrighteous. We have not perfectly obeyed God's law. And yet, the righteous one, Jesus, the only truly righteous human being, has sacrificed himself for us. Verse 18 continues, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. In Christ, God himself has taken our human flesh upon him and borne that flesh down into the grave. Our flesh is marked with frailty and death because in Adam, our bodies were condemned to death. But Christ, precisely by being put to death in the flesh, brings new life. He is made alive in the Spirit. Actually, I'd prefer to capitalize Spirit there and, and see this as a reference to the Holy Spirit, um, the third person of the Trinity. So, I would prefer to say that Christ is made alive by the Spirit. The Father raises the Son to resurrection life by the power of His Holy Spirit. And so, just as Jesus has been raised through the Spirit. He becomes the source of new life by the power of the Holy Spirit for us. Even now, in bringing us spiritual life and ultimately in raising our bodies on the day He returns. Okay, then we have a digression, which we're going to come back to over these next three verses. Um, notice that um, Peter picks it up at the end of verse 21 in the same spot. Uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. So having been raised to new life by the Spirit, Jesus ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And what is the final consequence of this? With angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. All the powers of the world, spiritual and earthly, have been subjected to Christ. He reigns as king over all. Isn't that a great summary of the gospel message of the story of Christ, his death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand? How does this answer the question, though, why should we do good under unjust suffering? I think we could kind of sum it up in two of the words from verse 18. 
also and once. First, also. If you are suffering unjustly, so did Christ. He's our example, as chapter 2.21 says. More than that, as we suffer, we are united to him. When believers suffer, the truth about who Jesus is works itself out in their lives and conforms us more and more to his image. The world may attack us and beat us down, but that just shows all the more how we are united to Christ, and therefore we cannot ultimately be destroyed because just as Jesus was raised, we will be as well. And so the pattern of Christ's resurrection victory over suffering is a comfort given to us to suffer in his image. But there's also the once. You see, in many ways, Christ's suffering is not like ours. He suffers as the perfectly righteous one. His suffering atones for sin. And through his suffering, he defeats all the forces of evil so powerfully that he is raised and installed as king over the whole universe. Our struggle with suffering is not the ultimate struggle. That struggle is already done. It has been won in our Savior, Jesus. You see, this, this relativizes the power structures all around us. Remember that phrase in chapter 2, verse 13. Peter said, submit for the Lord's sake to every human institution. It's like he's trying us to see this contrast. There's earthly power, but then there's heavenly power. The Roman Empire may seem glorious and terrible, but its claim to power is hollow and fleeting. True kingship belongs to Christ. All the powers of the earth have been subjected to Jesus, and that means that those who use their power unjustly better watch out. There is a day coming soon when Jesus will return to right every injustice, to punish wickedness, and to establish everlasting righteousness. So this is the broad context of what Peter is saying in these verses. We should do good under unjust suffering because of the gospel hope we have in Christ, that God will bring us through our suffering to resurrection hope, as he did with Jesus and that God will set right all injustice by the power of his King Jesus. Okay, so that's the, the broad picture of what Peter is saying in these verses. Now, are you ready for some of the weirder stuff? Okay, point two, the spirits in prison. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. So we start with in which. I think which here probably refers back to the Holy Spirit, and since I said we're, we're capitalizing spirit, we should rather say by whom. So, so what's the connection between these two verses? Well, it's the, the power, it's the power of the Spirit who raised Christ, that's the connection. The one, the one who raised Christ from the dead is also the one by whom he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. 
But when, when did Christ do this? When did Christ go by the spirits and, and proclaim uh, to these spirits in prison? And on that you get different interpretations. The time of the event is ambiguous too. Is this something that happens after Christ's resurrection? Or is this referring to something way back in the days of Noah? Both, both are possible construals of the text. And this has given rise to different theories over the years. Ancient interpreters tended to see this verse and a few others in the Bible supporting the idea that between his death and resurrection, um, Jesus descended into hell, beat up the demons, and rescued the souls of Old Testament believers. It's a common interpretation we find in the ancient church. People called it the harrowing of hell. Um, I will say this story has produced some fun medieval art. Uh, one of my favorite triptychs in the National Portrait Gallery, you know, depicts Jesus um, smashing down the door of hell, and there's this, like, fuzzy black demon that's, like, trapped under the door, and Jesus is stomping on him. As, as fun as that is, I don't actually think there's very good biblical evidence that something like this actually happened. Um, so if that's not what this is talking about, then what, what is it? Well, another interpretation connects this verse to the next one and says, well, this happened way back in the time of Noah. Um, and one thing you have to keep in mind for this is that Jesus doesn't come into existence for the first time when he's born as a human being. He is the Son, the Word of God. And the New Testament authors take very seriously the fact that Jesus, the Son, is already active in the Old Testament. And so this interpretation sees the spirits as rebellious humans in the times of no time of Noah and sees people like perhaps Noah who would have preached to them as preaching by the power of the Spirit of Christ. And so they would take this to be referring to Christ preaching through Noah and the power of his Spirit to that generation. I think, though, that there's a key to understanding this passage that is missing in both of these interpretations. And we have, to get there, we have to think a bit about the community to whom Peter is writing this message. What did Second Temple Jews like to read in the first century? What were their favorite stories? Well, one book that stands out is the book of Enoch. Don't know if you've heard, in it, heard of it before. If you're in my home group, you're a little bit ahead of the game because um, we've studied Jude before and talked about it. But in the Dead Sea Scrolls, Many copies of the book of Enoch have been found. In the New Testament, the book of Jude quotes the book of Enoch directly, and scholars find many other allusions to the book of Enoch in the pages of the New Testament. Why is that relevant to our passage? Well, the book of Enoch mentions a group of spirits who were imprisoned. In fact, it mentions that they, the fact that they are imprisoned multiple times. Enoch even goes with an angel to take a tour of the prison where the spirits are going to be imprisoned. Um, so, from my perspective, I, it's hard for me to imagine any first-century Jewish audience hearing about spirits in prison and not thinking of the book of Enoch. Um, so, what is the deal with these imprisoned spirits in the book of Enoch? What, is, what does it have to say about them? Um, well, the book of Enoch is actually a sort of creative retelling of Genesis 5 to 6. And Genesis 6 tells us about these beings named the Son of God, uh, sons of God. Mike read this for us earlier. And these sons of God see the beauty of the daughters of man and take them as wives. Their children are a group of giants called the Nephilim who are mighty warriors. 
Uh, and it's, it's with this event in Genesis 6 that we get this ramp up towards the wickedness of humanity that's so great that God is going to have to destroy the world with a flood. That just raises the question of, of who these sons of God are. Well, else, elsewhere in the Bible, the term sons of God usually refers to angels. Not, not always, but usually. And the book of Enoch interprets it this way. It, it interprets them as angels who fall away from their divinely appointed task and lead human beings into sexual immorality, idolatry, and acts of injustice, oppression, and bloodshed. They give human beings enormous power. Their children are the kings and great warriors of their day, but with that power comes an unprecedented level of evil and perversion. Okay, now I know that that might seem like a weird interpretation of Genesis 6. Um, there are others out there. There are Bible interpreters who disagree. They think that the sons of God refers to a group of powerful human beings or some other uh, human being. Uh, and um, while I have great respect for many of these um, good evangelical interpreters, I think that some of the New Testament passages um, push us in the other direction. For instance, Jude 6 says, uh, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. By the way, the he in that passage is Jesus. Jude says, you know, Jesus rescued a people out of Egypt, and Jesus is the one who kept these angels in chains. Very similar to the way to our passage talks about Christ already active in the Old Testament. Um, it's hard for me to read about these angels who don't keep their position of authority in full without thinking of this interpretation of Genesis 6. Second Peter, though the second epistle with Peter's name on it, chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and then he keeps adding examples, Notice that Peter here puts this event right before the flood. He even has this nice Greek allusion to Tartarus because his, uh, his, his, his audience who may know pagan literature knows that like, in, in Greek mythology, Zeus imprisoned the Titans in Tartarus, and he's saying it's like that. You know, God imprisons these evil beings in this primeval time. Um, we could talk more about those texts, but I think the upshot is that, you know, while I, I do respect the good evangelical and Reformed commentators who don't think Genesis 6 is about fallen angels, uh, I, I'm kind of going to have to go with the apostles on this one. Um, it, it seems to me that they're say, that's how they're reading Genesis 6, the same way that Enoch is reading Genesis 6. Um, by the way, that doesn't mean that they think that Enoch is inspired Scripture. We don't have to think that just because they quote it. Um, the apostles quote many things, even pagan authors. At sometimes, my teacher, Dr. Beale, would say that it's like they're using Enoch as a commentary. Maybe it's a bit more fun than the commentaries we read today because it's actually a retold story, perhaps like historical fiction or Bible fan fiction, if you will. Um, but the, the, the point is not that they agree with every detail, but that they find useful things in Enoch as it interprets Genesis 6. Okay, I know this is all a bit weird and maybe completely new to some of you. I'm going to go back to the YouTube video of this service 
um, later today and add a couple links to a couple podcasts in case you want to get more details or, or think about this a little farther. Um, but moving forward, this the idea of the book of Enoch. Well, how, does, how would Enoch actually help us understand what's happening in our passage a little better? Well, thanks to centuries of Ethiopian Christians who have preserved the book for us, the copies we have from the Dead Sea Scrolls and in Greek are, are pretty fragmentary, so um, we really owe it to the Ethiopians that they copied this for centuries so that we could read the whole thing. Um, the relevant story details go like this. So there's this group of angels that desire human women. They leave heaven and come to live with human beings, taking human wives and begetting violent giants with them. They teach humans astrology and witchcraft and various other kinds of occult knowledge and instigate all kinds of violence and bloodshed. But the outcry of the oppressed comes up before God and he decrees that the fallen angels will be judged and the earth will be destroyed with a flood. That's where Enoch comes in. Enoch is an exceptionally holy man. He receives visions of heaven and he's sent by God to prophesy against the fallen angels to announce God's judgment upon them and testify against them. In due time, Enoch's prophecy comes to pass as the fallen angels are imprisoned and the world is destroyed with a flood of which the only survivors are Enoch's great-grandson Noah and his family. Okay, again, I'm not suggesting that Peter would necessarily endorse all of the details there. Clearly, there's some creative interpretive touches. Um, But notice that we have spirits who are put in prison And we have Enoch commissioned to prophesy against them. Um, And then put that together with 2 Peter and Jude, both mentioning this verse. And I think it's reasonable to think that Peter is referring to Genesis 6 here, viewed through the lens of the book of Enoch. What I think Peter is saying is that Christ, by the Spirit, condemned these fallen angels through the proclamation of Enoch. Okay. But what would the point of all this be? Like, why would Peter bring this all up? Is it, is it just that, you know, that his audience loves these tales the way we love Star Wars or Lord of the Rings? And, you know, so if I make a sermon illustration from Lord of the Rings, people are going to be happy about it? Um, I mean, maybe a little bit, but I think there's actually um, some deeper connections here. Remember that these fallen angels are a source of injustice and oppression. Meanwhile, Enoch and Noah and their family are portrayed as a tiny minority without power in a world full of evil and injustice. They're up against these supernatural evil forces. But while they may not have the power, God does. The reason God allows this injustice to continue is that his patience is waiting, giving an opportunity for repentance. But God's patience will not wait forever. And finally, he executes judgment on the angels and delivers Noah and his family through the floodwaters in the ark. You see, I think Peter wants his listeners to see a parallel between their situation and Noah's situation. As they see the power and dominance of evil in the world, they're supposed to realize that it only continues because of God's patience. That one day, he's going to bring it all crashing down. At the same time, he will preserve his people. 2 Peter 2 summarizes the same point this way. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Notice how well this dovetails with the end of verse 22, where angels and powers and authorities are subjected to Christ. 
These aren't just the good, well-behaved angels here. I mean, look at what Paul says in Ephesians 6.12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Behind all the injustice we see in human institutions, there is a demonic power. Evil has this supernatural dimension. But just as God defeated and judged the spirits who brought the evil that caused the flood, now Christ has triumphed over the evil powers of the present age by defeating Satan at the cross. They are subjected to Christ and placed under his feet. Still, God's patience waits, since it's the time for repentance, the time for the nations to be released from the power of evil and come to Christ. This may be a weird passage, but when we put it in that perspective, I think we can see that its emphasis is healthy for us today. You know, our culture and the church as well are very concerned with injustice today, and that's a good thing. I don't know if you noticed, but there's a debate raging right now in the world and even in the church about where injustice comes from. Does it primarily come as a matter of individual choices? Or is it a result of structural societal forces? I mean, I think this is a good debate to be having. I'm not going to try to settle it today. I think there's scriptural points to be made on both sides. Certainly, Ezekiel 33 strongly emphasizes the importance of individual human responsibility. Other times, you have passages like where Samuel says, you know, if you appoint a king, he's going to tax you heavily and, like, enslave your children. You know, it's not... There's something about an institution like kingship that's inherently open to abuse by those in power. Um, But as we try to work out what is a biblical way to understand the balance of these two factors, I think there's something that we often miss, or at least I see it missing in the debates going down on Twitter and Facebook and all the other wonderful forums for public debate we have. We're forgetting about the evil spirits. Evil, you see, can't just be reduced to individual humans. It also can't be reduced to societal structures. Evil happens in the context of the dominion of Satan and his demons over the world. We are fighting a spiritual war. And that war is not something that's going to be won by convincing individual humans or by taking over the culture or changing the social structures. It's a war that is won by the power of Christ, which the demons cannot resist. This is also why I had Mike read Luke 10 for us, where Jesus sends out the 72, and they return saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, because as the preaching of the gospel goes out, the kingdom of Satan and his demons is pushed back. So how does this change how we respond to injustice in the world? For one thing, it means that we understand its depth and seriousness. Injustice is not just going to end because we elect the right person or get the right plan through Congress. Evil is much deeper and more intractable than that. In fact, if we stand up to injustice, if we do good in an unjust situation, is more like, the most likely thing that will happen is that we'll suffer in some way. That, that's clear from this passage. But although evil is powerful, we know that Jesus is more powerful. 
We know that the spiritual powers and authorities that hold this world in darkness have already been condemned by Jesus. That means we need to be careful where our hope is. We can't put our hope in our president or our Congress or our Supreme Court or our Constitution or in our wealth or in our reputation or in our standing in the community uh, or in our human philosophies to fix the injustice in the world. We have to put our hope in Jesus. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be politically active, by the way. Uh, Just because the early church had no political power, largely, doesn't mean we shouldn't use ours. Uh, The fact that we can vote, speak freely, protest, these are a huge blessing. Believe me, I'd much rather live in America than in the Roman Empire. Not a difficult choice. We can and should use the power that God has given us to address the injustice we see in the world. That's part of the doing good Peter is calling us to. I hope we also, like the early church, will uh, work in other ways, like rescuing and providing for unwanted infants, caring for the sick, giving up our money to help the poor, all these concrete forms of loving our neighbor that the Bible calls us to and the early church was so active in doing. And I hope we'll do all these things in a way that's submissive and respectful, that we just keep on quietly doing good, as, as Peter has been calling us to in this passage. The truth is that we don't know how God might bless our efforts to bring justice in our community. Sometimes God has blessed the efforts of Christians seeking justice amazingly. Sometimes their faithfulness has had little fruit. And to be, more, to be honest, most of the time it's been a combination of the two. I think of people like William Wilberforce, who most of his life looked like fruitless toiling to end an unjust practice out of his Christian convictions, and only very near the very end of his life did his Uh, his uh, attempts to outlaw the slave trade actually gain any traction. We don't know what God will do. Um, And you know, that's hard work that we're called to. It may involve suffering. And because evil is really powerful, what God calls us to requires perseverance. And that's why we really need to hear the hope that's in this passage. This world, with all of its injustice, is passing away. The rich... The riches, the power, the storied institutions, everything that seems so solid and forceful is empty and hollow. Smoke on the wind. Christ's kingdom will prevail against Satan and all his hosts. We don't know precisely how God will fit our lives and our callings into that wider story, but we do know how it will end with the serpent crushed under Jesus' feet. Okay, so that's point number two. If you need to stretch, you know, stretch a bit. Uh, I I hope you've seen at least some of what Peter might be doing with these spirits in prison here. And let's get ready to move on to point number three. Baptism. This is actually kind of smooth of Peter. Uh, The transition here is great. Having taken us back in time to the time of Noah, he now slides into the other thing he wants to talk about, baptism, uh, by means of the water imagery of the flood. After all, this is one of the main three big Bible stories that stand behind the imagery of baptism. Do do you know what what are the three big narratives that stand behind baptism? At least in my opinion, it's first of all creation of the world out of water, the flood at the time of Noah, and the parting of the Red Sea. There are, of course, other ritual texts that also stand behind it, but these are the three big Old Testament stories um, that come up. 
In all of these cases, the waters represent death. And there is a spirit or a wind, the same word in Hebrew, spirit and wind, of the God, which comes and parts those waters, bringing new life through them instead. Recall that Peter has made clear in verses 18 to 19 that Christ does all these things by the power of the Spirit. So just as the Spirit drove back the waters of death to deliver Noah's family from the flood, just as the Spirit raised Christ from the dead, so also we discover the Spirit brings us new life in baptism. Peter says that baptism corresponds to the flood. The flood is a picture of baptism. Our translation says that Noah and his family were uh, brought safely through water, Um, but we could get the parallel with the next verse better if we translate it that they were saved through water. It's, It's a cognate Greek term. Now Peter says baptism saves us. So he's paralleling the salvation that Noah and his family received through the flood and the salvation we receive through the waters of baptism. How exactly baptism saves us has been a source of controversy. Um, Roman Catholics don't agree with Lutherans. Lutherans don't agree with Presbyterians and the Reformed. Uh, Many Baptists and Evangelicals don't agree with Presbyterian and Reformed. And um, so there's a multitude of different explanations of how exactly baptism works. I think we can open by observing this is certainly very strong language for Peter to say baptism saves you. Maybe it reminds us of similar strong language about the Lord's Supper. This is my body, Jesus says about the bread. And he says about the wine, this is my blood. Paul says, the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Given the strong language, should we conclude that the elements of water, bread, and wine have some power in themselves? to save us or unite us to Christ, or to unify us as a church? Well, Peter's next words in this passage suggest otherwise. Uh, For he goes on to say, not as a removal of dirt from the body. So it would seem that this power to save us that baptism has, it's not simply a matter of physically going through the motions of the ritual. So what does make the difference then? Where does baptism's power come from? Well, guess what? This next phrase is again one that translators of interpreters have argued over. Um, Boy, Martin Luther wasn't kidding about this passage, was he? Um, The key issue is the word translated appeal in our version. Some other translations, maybe one that you're reading, might have the word pledge. There's certainly quite different sense than appeal, isn't it? The idea behind the translation pledge is that this is a technical legal term which translates a kind of Roman contract called a stipulatio. In a stipulatio, you have two parties, and and one party asks the other, do you promise to do X, Y, Z? And the other party replies, I promise to do X, Y, Z. This is actually kind of a big issue here. You see, if we translate the term as appeal, then the believer is asking the question, and God is promising. But if we translate it as pledge, we flipped it exactly backwards. Now God is asking the question, and the believer is promising. These are exact opposites. Well, I did spend a fair amount of time this week looking up Greek contracts from the Middle East from shortly after the time period of the New Testament. I'm not going to drag you all through that. Uh, I'll just tell you I concluded I I never found any examples where it means pledge. 
I did find somewhere it means stipulation contract, plausibly. And, and perhaps if we translated this as stipulation contract, right, if we translated um, the verse as, but as a stipulation contract to God for a good conscience, then we could have some uncertainty. You know, who's, who's doing which role in the contract, right? Uh, is the believer asking and God answering? Is God asking and the believer is answering? Many contracts are, are two-way stipulations, so, you know, both parties ask and both parties answer. Um, to be honest, I think the whole line of interpretation is a result of scholars being a little too excited about finding clever parallels. I find it unlikely that Peter just switched into legalese here, um, as if his audience enjoyed reading contracts as much as they enjoyed reading the book of Enoch. You won't find me very often going to a, a contract for a fun sermon illustration here. You know, that's my, that's my pledge to you, Wallace, as a congregation. No, no sermon illustrations from, from, from contractual legal language. Um, I think we can kind of be helped. So, so I think we already should be leaning heavily on the side of appeal. And I think we can be helped by bringing in a parallel scripture passage. Um, notice the phrase, a good conscience, in this passage. Um, that kind of reminds me of Hebrews 10.22. Do you know this text? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Notice the phrase evil conscience here. Um, by the way, conscience in the Bible refers to an awareness of sin and righteousness. Um, keeping a good conscience can mean simply, you know, avoiding doing evil things. Um, but conscience can also occur in this context of forgiveness, where the th evil things that we're, awa we're aware of are purged from us. And that seems to be what's going on in the Hebrews passage. Um, what are we bringing to the table in that passage? Well, we're bringing an evil conscience. And using this water imagery, the author of Hebrews sees our hearts being sprinkled clean from that evil conscience. So we bring an evil conscience, it gets sprinkled clean. And the author of Hebrews tells us as well that this is all possible through faith. If we use this clearer passage to interpret 1 Peter, then it makes sense to take it as an appeal. We come to God with only our faith, asking God to cleanse our evil conscience and give us a good conscience. There's a little disagreement here too. Some people might disagree with me about the good conscience and think that instead this appeal comes from a good conscience rather than being for a good conscience. In other words, the point would be that it's a sincere request. Um, I won't argue too much about that. I think both of those are completely possible understandings of the Greek. Um, I think the important focus, though, is on the nature of this as an appeal. It's a posture that recognizes our need to receive from God. We are the ones who ask, and God is the one who promises. The posture of the believer in baptism, as I think Mike alluded to earlier, is not of somebody saying, look how much I can promise to God, or look how strongly I can promise it. Rather, is one that believes and comes asking and hoping to receive God's promises. And that's not to say we shouldn't have vows in baptism, which the believer answers if they're old enough or their parents if they're not. But that's not what Peter is pointing to as the power of baptism. In order for baptism to save us, there has to be a spiritual reality in our hearts, the reality of faith 
which recognizes its unrighteousness before God, and like the tax collector in Jesus' parable, simply asks, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This faith holds up its conscience to God, a dirty conscience, filled with sin, and asks God to purify it by the blood of Jesus. So the appeal of faith is the first spiritual reality necessary for baptism to save us. But there's another. Peter adds, through the resurrection. Remember that Christ's resurrection comes by the power of the Spirit. And so for us to be saved, the Spirit has to apply the power of Christ's resurrection life to our hearts. Paul says in Romans 6 that we are buried with Christ in baptism and raised from the dead into newness of life. So the Spirit first plunges us into the waters of death by baptism, burying us with Christ, killing our old self through the power of Christ's death, and then draws us up out of the waters again in Christ's resurrection, giving us new life. Just as the Spirit pushed back the waters of the flood to reveal a new creation, so our baptism signifies the new creation acted in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And just as resurrection means uh, the justification of Christ, that when God raises him from the dead, he's announcing that this is his son, who, although he was received the death of criminals, is nevertheless just. So when we are raised with our baptism, we are justified. Our sins are washed away. Our consciences are purified so that we can stand before God accepted in Jesus' perfect righteousness. Don't, don't get me wrong here. Baptism saves you is still very strong language. And we should take very seriously this ordinance of baptism, commanded as it is by our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just an empty sign. We should expect God to be doing something through baptism. The Westminster Confession says the, the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time where it is administered. Yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. So at least according to the Westminster Confession, God really does confer grace through our baptisms. Always remembering, of course, it is through the power of the Holy Spirit and to those to whom it is belong, who it belongs. It doesn't just happen through physical water. Rather, it happens through faith that looks to God for help and the Spirit who applies Christ's resurrection life to us. By the way, I'm aware there's a debate about whether infants should be baptized. Um, good Christians are on both sides, and I think we've um, dealt with enough disputed questions here this morning. I'm going to be talking more about baptism in my Sunday school class if you, at some point, um, so um, we can talk about that uh, in that context. Um, but I, I, I do want this morning to ask, how do we expect Elysia's baptism to benefit her? And what are we expecting will happen? Well, we pray that God would be pleased to accompany this sign which we have administered today with the work of his spirit and with faith. We know that she cannot receive the benefit of this sacrament without receiving the spiritual reality it depicts in her heart. We hope that Elysia will look back on this day as a sign of the Spirit's work in her life. We pray that the Spirit would give life to her heart, which is by nature dead in sin, and work living faith 
so that she can see the truth of who Jesus is in this sign. The fact that he descended into the waters of death for her. The fact that he rose to a new creation life that he will share with her. We hope that as the Spirit turns her heart towards Christ, she will be cleansed by faith from an evil conscience. That she would receive forgiveness of sins and justification. That she would be freed from the power of the devil to walk in newness of life. And we hope that as she sees evil and injustice around her, she will see in her baptism the sign of God's power to wash the evil out of this world. And God's placing his claim and name upon her, that he's going to preserve her, even through the floodwaters of injustice. I wonder if it isn't this last image that Peter especially wants his listeners to understand most strongly. Baptism isn't just a picture of the start of the Christian life. It is a picture of where God is taking us, that he will guide us through the Jordan waters of this life to the promised land. Believers know God's power to defeat evil because he has removed the evil from their consciences through the blood of Christ. Not that they're finished with that process, but they've come to experience his power in their lives. And so when they look at evil in the world around them, they can look forward with confidence to the time when this baptism will be extended to the whole world as God purges the world of sin and injustice. In some sense, it's a baptism we have already gone through. Right after he says we've been baptized into Christ's death in Romans 6, Paul goes on to say that sin will no longer have dominion over us. We are released. Baptism shows us how we are released from sin's power and claim. We may still have many miles to walk in this suffering world until we reach the end of our journeys. But our baptism is the sign that we have experienced now, ahead of time, the cataclysmic event that will purge all evil from the world. And so we know in advance that God will keep us safe on our way there, just as if we were shut up in the ark with Noah and his family, where no evil can touch us. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. So as you go out into the world this week and you seek to do good, even if you suffer for it, to do battle with Satan's kingdom in the little ways that God has called you to, I hope you'll remember this sign of your baptism. In it, God has made a promise to you. Remember your Savior Christ, submerged under his suffering, but risen triumphantly to the Father's side. When you are tempted to fear, I pray that the Spirit will kindle in your heart an attitude of appeal to God, and I pray that He will show you Christ Jesus, powerfully exalted over every spiritual power and enemy. For it's through Christ's power that the power of baptism comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a difficult text, and yet we see in it your love. We see the wonders you have done for us through Christ. We see your power against every evil spiritual authority so that we don't need to be afraid. Thank you that you have saved us and placed your name upon us in baptism. We pray that you would help us to see Christ clearly. And we ask that that would motivate us to live out of that reality 
in the midst of a world full of injustice and suffering. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since God has delivered us through Christ, let's stand and praise him, singing, Come ye faithful, raise the strain.